Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's been 31 years since Ballethnic Dance Company first performed their now iconic Urban Nutcracker in the King Chapel on the campus of Morehouse College. The ballet is an Atlanta holiday tradition, and after going virtual in 2020, the show is returning live this season. Later in the hour, the founders of Ballethnic, Nina Gelreath and Waverly Lucas, will tell us about their inclusive vision of ballet. First, a beacon lights up the darkness or offers direction and guidance. In these unprecedented times, we can all use a beacon of hope. And Akari Johnson, also known as OK Cello, is doing just that with his new studio album. He joins me now via Zoom to guide us through Beacon. Corey, welcome back to City Lights. Wow, thank you, Lois, for having me back again. I love coming to the show. That's really wonderful. Well, you are truly a friend of the show. Now, please tell us the story behind the album's title. Beacon. Well, uh, Beacon is actually the name of a song. So the album is named from a song that is particularly special for me. It is one, my attempt to kind of channel Miles Davis, really the kind of exploratory, honest, emotional, experimental jazz that um, I think he's just really amazing for pioneering. But it also is this idea that music and that art in particular has the capacity to travel into the future. Um, It has the capacity to connect with our future selves and perhaps cement connections between the person we want to be and the person we are right now. And the idea behind Beacon is that it's essentially a love letter that I'm writing to the future Corey that I'd like to be. And I've got this dream that somehow he is out there listening to Beacon or picking up the album or going to his playlist and remembering when that song was written, remembering when I kind of endowed that song with these intentions and cementing the connection that I'm likely to be him. I hope it's a a model for how maybe we can even all use the song as a way of imagining who we want to be, imagining the world that we want to live in, and more important, imagining that that world remembers us. Oh my, all kinds of cosmic things going on here. Yeah, ambitious. (laughs) Ambitious and and hopeful, very hopeful. Very hopeful. In your song, Like to Sing to Music, you and your oldest daughter mm-hmm. are having a conversation on Zoom. Mm-hmm. What do we hear you discussing? You know, I decided for the first time to include interludes that tell a little bit more about my life and my artistry. Uh, and that was the first interlude. And um, 
What is interesting about that is that my daughter and I actually talk a lot about music. We talk about all kinds of artists, the music that she's listening to, the music that I'm listening to. But I'm realizing that we don't actually talk about my music all that much. I know that she likes my music and she comes to my concerts, but I'm not necessarily on her top playlist. And I, I just wanted to have a conversation about, you know, what would put me on her playlist. And it, more than anything, it was just supposed to be fun and trying to me, me creating a situation where I can get her laughing and joking. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So like, um, let me ask you a question. Do you listen to my music? Um, not if I'm not around you. Or yeah, 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 yeah. I, I watch your Instagram videos. You watch my Instagram videos? Right? Yeah. So, so what, what would I need to do to, to, to play music that you would be listening to? What would need to be in my music? Um, uh, I don't know. Like, I like to sing to music. Ah, uh, you need some words. I think that's always, like, why I like, because I like to sing. And I like melodies, and I do like your melodies, but I like to sing to melodies, so I feel like that's... But it was it was an interesting interlude because the song afterwards I end up you know singing a little bit on and it's not because of that interlude it's just there's one of the few songs where I sing a little bit but it was a it was a great for me kind of intergenerational um, look into my art and my life you know what it's like to be a dad and <laughs> artist and and no matter you know how ambitious you are or how um, maybe even successful you are at the end of the day like you're still somebody's dad and. <laughs> It's like, mm, no, Dad, I'm not singing on your album. I don't care how cool you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, Arcaria, was it a surprise to you when she said she likes to sing to music? I mean, here you have what is undoubtedly the most soulful sounding of all instruments in cello, but, yeah, you don't sing. <laughs> and uh, I guess she doesn't think at least now, in the conventional sense, that your cello sings. Was that a revelation? Uh, no, I mean, I think to some degree I was aware of her relationship to instrumental music prior to this. But what was fun about that interlude was just exploring what it is she likes about music and what it is I do. And in spite of the fact that, you know, she likes my melodies, but I don't really have many words in my songs, she's listened to the album, she's listened to that song, and she kind of connects with it. I think there's a fun uh, little tongue-in-cheek irony that the song directly following her, yeah, but your music doesn't have words, has some words in it. Not that I'm a great singer. <laughs> I'm very comfortable being a cellist. But, you know, I think the album, in addition to being about hope for me, is also about uh, stretching and growing. I don't know, I thought that that song, that interlude in general, was an opportunity for me to kind of grow a little bit and share a little bit more of myself as a father and just as a person with my audience. So. Also sweet that ultimately when she says she loves your melodies, she is acknowledging that your cello sings, just not with the words she's used to. <laughs> Who knows what happens in the future, but yes, you know, for right now, I think I will be very comfortable with the fact that my cello sings and she does like those melodies. So. I like when you talked about, imagine a fantasy league of song production. Right? You know, that's kind of fun. Uh, you know, actually, I do that from time to time. When It's interesting. I've got a particularly narrow niche of performance when it comes to what I do. But every once in a while, I'm like, ooh, I'd love to have that producer produce a track for me. Or uh, I think it would be really cool to have that mixing engineer. Speaking of which, Martin Kearns and my best friend Julian Tillery are kind of responsible for the sound on the album. Julian Tillery, some months back, did an initial mix, but Martin Kearns did the final mix and mastering for this album, and I'm just so happy with what he did. So I did get a little bit of a Fantasy League a song production experience with this album, so I just wanted to shout him out and, and say thank you. I just love the music nerds in us thinking that there can be a Fantasy League of song <laughs> production. <laughs> You know, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, right? who needs football? You don't get concussions <laughs> this way. <laughs> yeah, this would be a good 
draw you're looking at all the producers all of the mixing engineers all of the percussionists all of the instrumentalists and vocalists and putting together your fantasy band lois i don't know maybe did we just stumble onto something did we just stumble onto our retirement so. uh, fun there maybe you and i should put that together no kidding it's a corrective <laughs> for head injuries you know it's just all <laughs> healthy and good and yeah. wonderful self-expression i love that i love that if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with a Corey Johnson, also known as OK Cello. His third studio album, Beacon, is out now. This is a departure from your previous albums, which featured mostly cello and sound looping. Would you talk a bit more about why you wanted to include spoken word and singing on this album? You know, uh, I'm not sure that we talk about it so much, but my previous life, or I would say really a concurrent life, was as an English teacher. And uh, when you come to my shows, that's perhaps something that you see. My show is certainly musical, and there's a lot of looping, there's a lot of improvising, but there's a lot of storytelling. And in addition to there being a certain amount of storytelling, I think there's kind of like a lot of intellectual exploration. It's kind of like being in a classroom in all the great ways. I love the classroom. I think it's one of the most beautiful places anyway. But I have a strong relationship to language as well. And the cello is one of those things that kind of gets me out of my head and gets me out of my mouth, right? And I love that. But I also enjoy when the two are able to join forces. And uh, in particular, there's this song, this, this song on the album called Your Hand which is a poem about love that I was really moved and inspired to write recently. There's definitely a subject of that poem. And, uh, and in many ways, that poem and that partnership between words and music is what I hope to some degree there's more of a future for, for me. I really enjoyed being part of the Emory Arts and Social Justice Fellows that happened in 2020. Uh, and the yield of that project was that I not only was in the classroom working with grad students, not only was I hoping to distill their conversations into something that was meaningful and artistic, but I got a chance to write poetry. I got a chance to write poetry, which, you know, I used to do quite a bit, especially as an English teacher and as a writer. And then I got a chance to compose music to that poetry. And it was probably the first time in my adult professional and artistic career when I think I was asked to be all of the things that I am. And it was really special to me. So in that way, I think I'm going to take moments to explore that when I can, especially on my own projects. So I think there will be more language and cello. It will always be more cello than anything else. But I do think that I will use language in this moment to support, augment, amplify what I think oftentimes my cello is trying to get me to say. Let's talk about These Are the Days. Mm. I didn't think you were old enough to recall <laughs> All in the Family, the hit TV show from the 70s with Norman Lear produced. I take it you watched it in reruns. Probably I watched it in syndication. So I'm 46, turning 47 and would have been a, a, a very small child in the 70s when it was on yeah. broadcast there. But I definitely watched it in syndication, the same way I watched Sanford and Son and the Jeffersons. And, you know, I, I definitely got a heavy dose of what was popular 70s sitcom uh, TV. Mm -hmm. But I, I really love that melody. I think, it's a, I think it's a really beautiful pentatonic major scale that is used wonderfully. But more exciting for me is that the show it was such a brilliant piece of satire, right? And just the way in which we were invited to recognize, but also be critical of Archie Bunker and his disinterest in staying with the times. You know, he was racist, he was homophobic, he was sexist. And, and the show used his stubbornness as a way to kind of illustrate how the world was changing and how those of us who cared to change with it needed to do so because we were gonna be left behind. And that satire, that message starts from the very first moments of that song. Da 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 da. And you know, just the 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 notes of guys with guys, girls with girls, we need a man like Herbert Hoover again. <laughs> People like us, we had it made. You know, it had something to that line. You know, it's it's a problematic 
melody in 2021. You know what I mean? It's a problematic song, and as a black man who's very aware of the fact that I'm black and very conscious and progressive in my values and my politics, who's worked in DEI, it's complicated for me to go around singing Those Were the Days, right? West African in so many ways in which the Great American Songbook is inspired by jazz, which is essentially black people, Africans in this country, translating these kind of centuries old cultural and artistic instincts through a new world situation and, and, and schema and drama where they find themselves using European instruments and for the most part having to translate these instincts into a modernity that is complicated and painful and difficult and marginalizing. So the Great American Songbook is full of such really beautiful, rich pentatonic melodies, polyrhythmic syncopation that, that is just so rich with West Africa, right? But we don't think of it that way. Yeah, and yet also, I guess, uh, not too far removed from West Africa, I felt like you had a Caribbean vibe going on mm. in that. Certainly. So, so what I love about the world that I create is I, I kind of, the, the goal for the song is for me to create a new world for that old melody. And that new world is also an old world that is this Afro-Caribbean world. I mean, I think Cuban is kind of how I feel of it, feel about it a little bit. Maybe even there are some kind of like English speaking Caribbean elements in it. But yes, and then I love at the end when in that new world, we get a chance to take that melody from All in the Family and to drop it in. But we've dropped it into a new world with a new sister melody whose lyrics are, these are the days. Yeah, you put a positive spin on that sentimentality or false nostalgia. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to give myself every reason to sing that melody. If you've heard the new song, then you understand what I'm singing. So that's, oh, that's the goal. Yes. In Thumbs Up, we hear a sweet duet with you and your youngest daughter. I understand this was the first time you two had recorded a song together. How long has she been playing piano? You know, she's been playing piano for a couple of years. She's been working with um, a couple of really great pianists in town, Tammy Harper and Nick Rosen. And she likes to read a little bit more than she likes to improvise but you know for the purposes of recording for the album i didn't really want to do a contemporary popular piece because i would have to get a license for it so you know i was trying to get her to like improvise a little bit and she was like i don't know if i want to improvise and so we, we <laughs> kind of stumbled onto something that i think she was at least open to but what was fun about that is that like i really just hope it's a, a precious precedent She was 14 at the time, she's 15 now. And um, I intend to keep doing this as long as I'm alive. I really hope that we'll look back from our fourth or fifth recording together at this first one and laugh, you know, laugh at the music or the composition or laugh at, you know, how many times she closed the piano because she was anxious or nervous or laugh at just the natural organic punchline of, you know, they can't hear your thumbs up and her response of, thumbs up. I, it, I don't know. I just, I, I, I hope the audience enjoys it. Oh, yeah. But it's a special little Very snapshot for me of this moment in time for me and my daughter, who is really interested in becoming you know, like an audio engineer and a video editor. And she's recording her friends and she's learning the piano and playing guitar and ukulele. And 
Wow. You no, know, it's this new thing that, you know, we kind of have in common. She doesn't talk too much about the fact that we have it in common. We just kind of like walk past each other and nod and listen to what the other person is doing. But it is a really special moment for me. Mm. This is the first album you have released with ZMI Records. Please mm. tell us how you found that company. Yeah, it's a great story. So um, Ross Rossin is an amazing, I think he calls it hyporealism portrait artist here in Atlanta. He's internationally known and celebrated. And um, through uh, Carlton Mackey and the work of the Center for Ethics at Emory, I was invited to be part of a show um, maybe four or five years ago with Andy Young, Ross Rossin, Center for Ethics and Emory, and this conversation about becoming human. That was the title of the show. And it was a look at his really big, beautiful portraits that are just insanely realistic. They look like photographs, but they're, you know, the size of like 15 feet by 15 feet. And uh, I was invited to play Liminal and then um, Stephen, uh, Tavara Stevens, uh, an improvisational poet, and colleague of mine, he and I put together a piece that was kind of like the soundtrack for the event. Well, it turns out that they're doing a documentary on Ross and the executive producer of the documentary is a gentleman named Chad Hagen. And uh, Ross invited Tavares and me to contribute some music to the documentary. So we went out to his house, we saw the new pieces that he was working on. You know, he's done stuff of like Desmond Bishop Tutu, of Morgan Freeman, Maya Angelou, um, just really, really beautiful, larger than life pieces. And so we got a chance to go into a studio and brainstorm and also play a little bit. You know, Tavares and I played. But then after, you know, the meeting was over and we were packing up, I was talking about my solo work and Chad Hagen, the executive producer for that documentary was also there. And he was just kind of intrigued by my music and intrigued by what I was attempting to do as a solo artist. And we started having conversations about, you know, possibly releasing the third album. And uh, he got pretty excited about doing it. And, you know, over time, one thing led to another and here we are. And uh, so it's my first label released project and I'm really appreciative of the of the support. You know, I did all the recording for the most part on my own, but they helped with the mixing and the mastering and the distribution and the promotion. So uh, it's, it's really wonderful to have some support and uh, I'm excited about the partnership going forward. Uh, Corey Johnson, also known as OK Cello, his third studio album, Beacon, is out now. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. It's been 31 years since Balethnic Dance Company first performed their now iconic Urban Nutcracker in the King Chapel on the campus of Morehouse College. The ballet is an Atlanta holiday tradition. And after going virtual in 2020, the show is returning live with two performances at Legacy Theater in Alpharetta on December 18th. Nina Gilraith and Waverly Lucas founded Ballethnic with their inclusive vision of ballet. Earlier this year, they joined me via Zoom, along with professional dancer Carla D. Tyson. Gilraith began by explaining the motivation behind creating a space for underrepresented classical dancers. What was always interesting to me is that I came from a small hometown where I did not see little girls that looked like me that did ballet. So early on, I wanted to dance ballet. And then as I got older, I began to feel that it was my God-given call to be that example for others. So when, when we came to the Atlanta Ballet and I started to see that there just needed to be another place of access, that's what started this change for us, I would say our revolution. Yeah, 
for me, I think it would be, it started, I would say, at Marygrove College. And uh, people would always ask me, what was my favorite form of dance? I would say sometimes ballet, sometimes African or ethnic dance. And, you know, that love of those two polar opposites really attracted me to want to really redefine what ballet could be or what ballet was in my own spirit, you know, sort of similar to how jazz musicians navigate their craft. We've done the same thing with ballet because at times we've broken some of the barriers that are placed on ballet or expanded them, should I say. And so, and the same thing with African or ethnic dance forms. I think we've taken a community approach. You feel that everyone should be involved. Everyone has something to share and offer within it. And so this is how we work as an organization. Carla, we last spoke in 2017 when you were performing in the annual Urban Nutcracker. Would you talk about Balletnik's adaptation of the classic Tchaikovsky ballet? Sure. It has all of the same classical music. Um, There is one song that was produced by El Gerard Reed for part of Russian, but everything is the same. We just, Miss Nina and Miss Huevely just made it adapt to a different time period. And we changed some of the names of the characters to fit more of the urban community. And we have a lot of things that are reflective of like Atlanta. We have like Coca-Cola bottles and Coca-Cola dancers. So it's the same, but it's different. And Lois, I would like to add with that, one of the focal points is the fact that our Nutcracker is based in the image of Marcus Garvey and the soldiers are his Garveyite army. And so, so you have things like that. It's also based on Sweet Auburn Avenue. And you have a lot of historical points that you know, basically is the foundation for it, as, such as Yates and Milton's drugstore is where it takes place. Yeah, tell us please about setting the Urban Nutcracker in 1940s Atlanta. Yes, actually I was fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to interview Father Henry Bowden, who I believe was with the first African-American Episcopalian priest in Atlanta. You know, he was the uh, grandfather of Gloria Bowden, who was our board director. And when I interviewed him, this man was so distinguished and, you know, it's like it made me sit up so straight during the interview. And that's where I got the motivation for the character Professor Isaac, who's likely to the Drosselmeyer in in the traditional Nutcracker. And so, you know, I think these are the things by having embodied knowledge of speaking with, you know, having discourse with different, should I say, people that are relevant from that time period allowed me to peer beyond just merely accepting the information that I received from the Apex Museum, for instance. I was able to delve deeper into it. And so that's what what was important about it, Mm. I think. It's interesting for me to hear you talk about Marcus Garvey. I didn't realize that his work and writing was an influence on the ballet. Yeah, I think think that's one of my reasons, because often people ignore African-American culture, especially if it's not prevalent. And I think, and and this is our own uh, community that I saw. And so for me, I feel that as an artist, it is up to us to expose our community and our young people to things that, you know, basically are not there generally. And this is what our art allows us to do. Yeah, and at first glance, when I saw this setting was 1940s Atlanta. This is several years ago when I first became familiar with Urban Nutcracker. I thought, ooh, pre-Voting Rights Act, pre-Civil Rights Act. I wouldn't think 1940s Atlanta would have been a special time, but you present a very different picture of life in Sweet Auburn in the 1940s. Would you talk about that? 
So in the 1940s, it was a very prosperous time on Sweet Auburn Avenue. It was one of the wealthiest avenues in America. So that was important for us to show a time in history that we were doing very well and that Blacks we were doing for ourselves. And to piggyback on what Waverly said in regards to the Marcus Garvey Nutcracker influence, it was all about doing for ourselves. We came up with founding Balethnic at a time that we did not know about grants and about contributions. So we had to figure out a way to self-fund early on. And throughout most of our history, we've had to continually think about ways to help ourselves or else we would not be here today. We understand that we don't do it alone and that our community is an important part of it. So in order to get the community to engage and to embrace what we were doing, it became an educational feat because when you have working class people <clears throat> that may think that the arts are frivolous or might not know enough about it, we had to create something that people felt like they needed and wanted to be a part of it. So we created a community that reflected our values, our history, our entrepreneurialism, and all things that gave us power and so when we first started Urban Nutcracker, everyone helped to paint the backdrop. We bought a big 30 by 40 piece of muslin and we had Kevin Sipp, who oh. was an artist. Yes. He helped us to draw what the background was gonna be. Um, and everybody chipped in with some paint and we did that. All the families and parents brought in prom dresses to create the dresses for the party scene. We shopped at yard sales. So that is what's so community about what we do in the early years when there was not the big level of resources and we were learning. Well, you also have actively worked on providing community programs. Both of you have been dedicated to accessibility for low-income families in the metro Atlanta area. Would you talk about some of those efforts, please? Again, early on, we knew in order to include and to grow our brand, which we didn't think of it as a brand at that time, but to grow our family and to build the type of families that we came from. I come from North Carolina where my community was very strong and we helped one another we knew that we had to celebrate everybody in the community and we definitely had to celebrate and include people that did not have the wherewithal or the money. So early on, anybody that wanted to dance, we accepted them into our space. And we don't believe in just giving things. We wanted people to understand the nobility of hard work and what that means. So if someone could contribute a quarter, a dollar, or whatever it is they had, or if it was the trade-off of work, we wanted everybody to have a skin in the game. And we still do that now with our work-study program. That's how Waverly was able to build a dance-sure development project for young men was to bring them into this family environment and teach the guys through an athletic approach. That's how I was able to work with girls with beyond the bar programming to bring them in as well. Um, because we're in COVID now, it's tougher, of course, to do the things that we once did pre-COVID, but early on we traveled to all kinds of schools, all kinds of churches, community centers, like bringing what we do and making people understand that art and culture is very important and that it is a way of life and that we as creatives are called just like every other profession. So I think in thinking and showing how we worked in that manner, it broke a lot of barriers and it made people who ordinarily would think of dance, especially ballet in a certain way go, oh, I mean, I, if I had a dollar, for every time I heard people tell us, oh, I like that kind of ballet. I never liked it before, but I like y'all's kind of ballet. Wow, I would be pretty, pretty wealthy, <laughs> yeah. Why do you think there is a stereotype among 
black people not wanting to participate in classical ballet. Essentially, what led to ballet's lack of diversity? Well, I think part of it, uh, and that's an interesting question because that is part of what my focus became in my thesis, my master's of ethnochoreology thesis at the uh, University of Limerick of the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance. I focused on, you know, basically why uh, what we do is relevant. I, I, in the, I did a timeline and it focused on three basic African-American black companies, uh, Ballethnic Dance Company, Dance Theater of Harlem, which is the oldest, and Collage Dance Collective. And basically, you know, it pointed out how you have three companies, black, you know, black-based, classical-based companies. And basically, all pretty much struggle. And that that's, you know, when you look at the makeup of the African-American community and um, financial uh, status that's available and, and just overall how, you know, you can only have three of these type of company, professional companies and all still struggle. That says something. And I think part of it is, is the lack of inclusiveness of ballet. And you know, whereas the uh, one of the things I pointed out how those two companies are more or less they deal more with the traditional form of ballet, assimilating more uh, the uh, white stereotypically white organization. Whereas Ballethnic has really focused on redefining, utilizing strong classical concepts, but daring to you know push those those edges and to redefine ourselves to fly below the radar. And so, like I said, I don't think it was initially intended for us to do it. But just like with anything, as we mix, as we grow, Babatunde Olatunji told me something when I was working with him. He was like, no one can covet art or culture. He's like, it's to be shared. He's like, if you, if you don't want it shared, you know, then you, you hide it away. He's like, and you can't hide it away because once it's exposed, it is of the world. It's no longer yours. And that was a beautiful thing. Waverly Lucas and Nina Gilraith, co-founders of Ballethnic, with company ballerina Carla D. Tyson. We'll be back with more of this conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the co-founders of Ballethnic, Nina Gilreath and Waverly Lucas, along with company ballerina Carla D. Tyson. We've been discussing the importance of representation in classical ballet. Well, for, for me, the reason I got into dance was because I loved to move and I had all these influences, but ballet was just something that I felt like I could do and it was really beautiful. So initially you get into dance because you just like the art form and then all of a sudden you look around and go, hey, all the rooms that I walk in, I'm one of the only ones or one of the few ones. Or when you start to see that casting comes up and you're relegated to certain parts or you have to fight for every part, then I started to realize, wow, there's a greater battle that's happening. And 
Am I willing and do, am I able to endure and persist through this battle? And I chose that I could, I felt like I could have the tools. And for me, mostly is that I felt like if I fought hard enough, the next generation would have a better opportunity. And here we are, we're still fighting. I remember um, before Mr. Mitchell passed away, Arthur Mitchell, the founder of Dance Theater of Harlem, he came to Atlanta to work with us. And one of the times I had the opportunity to drive him back to his hotel. And he said to me, he was like, I can't believe that I'm still saying the same thing 50 years later. And that really, wow, underscored something very powerful for me. It made me go, well, this is gonna be what our life's fight is about. I wanna stay in the game so that I can help make a way for people like Carla. And even with our smaller budget, we've been able to create working opportunity for brown and black dancers and other dancers, because we've had white dancers in our company as well, to work and to do what we do in a very excellent, in an excellent manner. So the fight continues. And as I get discouraged some days, I think about what Mr. Mitchell said to me, and it gives me a new juice. It gives me juice to even approach it in a regional effect as I work in Athens now also um, at the East Athens Educational Dance Center. So I know the battle is just, it's not one way. Having done it 30 years and at the 27th year, honestly, I almost gave up because so many things were stacked against us that Waverly and I knew we had to make a change. So it's more of a regional approach for us and then we'll continue to spread out because we have this knowledge, this energy and desire and why God still has given us enough strength. I want to be able to continue to preach the gospel of access through your art and through the art of dance and using that art to make change in other parts of the community and in your life. Carla, you've been active in various forms of dance continually. You were a participant on the TV show, So You Think You Can Dance, in season eight. You were a Laker girl for the Los Angeles Lakers for three seasons, which really is a dance team. You did that before returning to Balletnik. What made you decide to return to the company? It's really weird. Wow, I was listening to uh, Miss Nina talk. Um, I did do a few like ballet performances while I was um, in LA. I did like someone's Nutcracker um, version and like an Alice in Wonderland. And it was at some point where I was taking class. I was like, I could like stay here, but I thought about the fact that I would basically have to start all over. And by that point, I was already older than probably uh, most of the people I would probably be quote unquote, like fighting against um, for like certain parts or certain privileges, I guess. I just was like, I don't want to do that. I just felt like I was too old. And, and I guess my mind, I thought I, I accomplished either more than what they have or just accomplished too much for myself that I didn't feel like I wanted to start all over. So I just decided to pack up after I was done with Lakers and just decided to come back home. And I'm thankful that Mr. Waverly and Ms. Nina decided to take me back and I can continue my professional ballerina career um, at Valethnik until I decide to hang them up. Nina and Waverly, what are your thoughts on having various body types and physiques participating in ballet. Yeah, I have a lot of indifference about that because I, I, I've, I've seen some incredible dancers get overlooked because of this so-called ideal body type. And you know, my, my, I've always had the philosophy, uh, I guess that's part of the, the blend with the African culture that there's no such thing as the wrong body type. It's more or less the wrong spirit and the wrong work ethic. You know, that, that matters more to me because I've seen just some incredible dancers completely, you know, dismissed. And, and uh, there were some that we've had 
Amy Harold, uh, she was one who came, we, we got from U University of Georgia dance department. And she danced with us for over 10 years. And she was incredible. And, but she didn't have that stereotypical body type. Which is what? Right here. The thin, long lines, you know, basically, you know, flat uh, behind, you know, that's just part of it. You know, Nina didn't have that. But then, you know, her talent was undeniable. Same thing with Carla. I'm, I watch this constantly with the black ballerinas, whereas being a black male in dance, it's different because there, you know, of course, because of my strength and everything, I'm used differently. So there's a value, you know, whereas I have, I can go, I have many other options often in the ballet world. Whereas the ballerina, black ballerinas, they're very few. And even though many of them are so far much more talented than us, than the males sometimes. So what do you think can lead to greater diversity in ballet? Do you think diversity training in ballet schools? How do you change people's attitudes? I really believe that the ballet world is a microcosm of society as a whole. And I think what we're doing is we're seeing it. There are times where we kind of glance, you know, glance over it and say, oh, well, that's back then. You're holding on to things. And that's easy to say when you're not experiencing it on a daily basis. You know? And so I think this is what it is. I don't look at the ballet world really any differently than the real world. And in society, this is what, you know, what we deal with. You know, it's real. What you see is what you get. So that is why representation of BIPOC, Black dancers in classical dance settings is so important for younger audiences to see. Absolutely. And, and even more importantly is that we go beyond the assimilation of the stereotypical white dance genre and really redefine what classicism is because we have our own form of classicism, which is based on elegance, beauty, grace, and those concepts. Yes. Clearly your mission of informing, educating, and entertaining through dance has come to fruition, as well as using your art to impact the community with programs that act as a catalyst for social change. Do you have new goals? Yeah, in fact, our new goal is our old goals. We wanna to continue to do fantastic, innovative, exciting work. We worked with Perkins and Will and they've come up with this fantastic reimagining of our space in East Point. So we'll be going into a capital campaign to first start with our outdoor amphitheater. We have a little stage outside now, but we want to expand that. So I'm really excited because as COVID hit, one of the first things we did was to have an outdoor cultural cul-de-sac coming together at our space. So now we'll be able to do it even better and greater. And then we want to impact the next generation by mentoring the next set of leaders business-wise and artistically. So I have many mentees right now. And again, while I have this energy and excitement, I want to pour into as many people that want to learn what we have to offer and to help them with this path so it won't be as difficult as our path. And, you know, always for me, work is the champion. So if people have that spirit of working in excellence, I'm ready to join hands with others and help lead the way. So ultimately, Ethnic will get its new vision, its new leadership, but we want to help show the way. Nina Gilreath and Waverly Lucas, co-founders of Ethnic Dance Company from our interview earlier this year. They were joined by company ballerina Carla D. Tyson. Ballethnic's iconic 
Urban Nutcracker will be performed on December 18th at Legacy Theater in Alpharetta. More information is on their website, balethnic.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Ricky McKinney and Joey Williams of the Blind Boys of Alabama stopped by to tell us about their upcoming show at Eddie's Attic. Plus, we'll hear about the Atlanta History Center's new exhibition, American Democracy. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.